was a great time of praise this morning. Let's give our praise team a hand. Thank you, guys. Well, two weeks ago on a Sunday morning, our youth mission team, well, we were pretty hungry. Uh, we had spent half the night in baggage claim in the Houston airport and finally got our rental vans, and we headed off to Nederland, Texas. So we rolled in at Nederland, and there wasn't uh, much that we could have eaten in the baggage claim. We found a vending machine off to the far side of the terminal area, but it didn't have great food in it. So we were pretty hungry. And so we decided once we got to Nederland to stop by an old Texas favorite, the Waffle House. And so we pull into the parking lot, and it's a little bitty restaurant, and we open the front door of the Waffle House, and the smell pours out, and it was like we had just stepped into heaven. The smell was amazing of the, the waffle batter, and so we go in, and, and they mainly just have tables for four, so we kind of circulated through the little restaurant and sat down at different places. And, and so the first thing that hit me when we walked through the door was the smell. It was amazing. And, and then the second thing I noticed was this was one of the noisiest restaurants I'd ever been in in my life. We go in, it's kind of set up like an old-fashioned diner. Uh, there are no interior walls separating the kitchen from the eating area. And so all of the noise from the kitchen just pours out into the eating area. And because all the noise from the clattering dishes and pans and waffle irons is pouring into the dining area, uh, they want to kind of mask that a bit, so they crank up the music. And so you've got loud music, you've got loud clanking of pans, and we sit down at one of these booths right up against the kitchen. And unlike in the restaurants we're used to, there's no interior wall between our booth and the kitchen. It's just the table right there up against the kitchen. And so the waitress doesn't come to the other side of our table to take our order. She just stands in the kitchen and takes our order. And so there she is standing in the kitchen. And, you know, I go into this situation knowing that I am fairly fluent in three languages, English, Spanish to some extent, and Southern. You see, my mom was from Birmingham, Alabama, and my daddy grew up in Oklahoma City, and so I got a certain understanding of how they speak in the South, and I can usually understand it pretty well when they're speaking back to me. You know what I'm talking about, y'all? So I'm sitting down, no problem. If she's a local and has a heavy Texas accent, no problem for me. She starts talking as she's standing in the kitchen. I can't understand half of what this woman's saying. She's taking order and explaining how the Waffle House, I can't, I'm just kind of smiling and nodding, and could you say that again? And she's repeating it, and finally, we figure out what she's saying, but it was hard to understand her amidst all of the noise. It's like that in our relationship with God sometimes, too, isn't it? We've got all the noise, we've got all the chatter, we've got all the commotion, and it's like God is speaking some sort of thick southern accent, and we can't understand half of what he's saying. And this is all the more common when you and I find ourselves in a valley of discouragement or depression. When we are down in the dumps, sometimes it's very hard to hear the still, small voice of God. I think this passage today will be a blessing to you. Please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you're visiting with us today, we are a church that opens its Bibles. Uh, we won't just put all the verses on the screen for you. We want you to see it. Uh, for yourself right there in God's Word, that what we're teaching today is from God's Word. And so we're in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you. Also, I encourage you to pull out those message notes from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil so you can jot down some notes 
and fill in some blanks as we move through this chapter today. 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be, and I'll go ahead and open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for this privilege you give us to dive into your word. It's not my word. Lord, it's, it's not anyone sitting down today in this room, their word. Lord, this is your word. And so, Lord, speak to us through your word today. It is living and active. And so, Lord, we don't expect it to bring no results. We don't expect it to be just interesting or fascinating or educational. Lord, we expect your word to transform us as only your word can do. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, turn to the person next to you and say, I knew this was going to be another good one. That was about ten of you. Okay, I can, I can deal with that. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, we have one of the most exciting and thrilling stories in all of Scripture. I love 1 Corinthians 18, and probably most of you do as well. We find this exciting story in chapter 18. That the backdrop, it's about 60 years after the kingdom of Israel had been split in two. Most of you remember what happened after King Solomon, David's son, died. The kingdom of Israel and those 12 tribes were split in two. There were 10 tribes that seceded from the Union. They stayed in the north. We know them as the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the two tribes in the south, they were huddled around the city of Jerusalem. That was the southern kingdom of Judah. And so about 60 years have taken place since that split between north and south. And here we have in northern Israel, those ten tribes in the north, their king is King Ahab. Now many of you recognize King Ahab's name. He is described in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, this way. In those verses we read, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. So King Ahab was hands down the most wicked king that northern Israel had ever had. And he was married to Queen Jezebel, who was hands down the most wicked queen that northern Israel had ever had. In chapter 18, we read in verse 4 that Jezebel was hunting down God's prophets there in the north. She was a crazed Baal worshiper, and she uh, hated the one true God with a passion. Her goal was to eradicate all Yahweh worship from Israel. Well, here in 1 Kings 18, God's prophet Elijah learns that Jezebel and Ahab are hunting him down too. It's not just the other prophets of God. They were looking specifically for him. They wanted to kill him. And so he finds out in chapter 18 that they're hunting him down, and he basically takes a stand in chapter 18 and says, enough is enough. No longer am I going to deal with this hunting down of God's servants. No longer am I going to put up with this eradication of Yahweh worship from Israel. And so he basically takes a stand and challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown up on this mountain called Mount Carmel. He tells Ahab, King Ahab, I want you to invite all 450 of your Baal prophets, invite them to this mountain. And while you're at it, why don't you go ahead and invite the 400 prophets of Asherah, Baal's girlfriend. Invite all 850 of these prophets that 
that come in and out of the palace and you and Jezebel know so well, invite all 850 of them to Mount Carmel. And while you're at it, invite the rest of Israel. This is going to be a very public showdown between the Lord God and Baal. And we're going to find out who the one true God is. Well, most of you remember what happens once everyone gathers on Mount Carmel. Once the crowd is gathered there, Elijah yells out there in chapter 18, How long? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Then Elijah asked the prophets of Baal to make an altar, to put wood on top of the altar and get their little sacrifice all ready. The only thing they weren't allowed to do would be to light that altar on fire. They were going to pray to Baal, and if Baal was the storm god like they claimed he was, the god who was in charge of thunder and lightning, certainly the storm god, if they prayed to him and asked him to do so, could send down a lightning bolt and light that fire for them. They wouldn't need to light it on fire. And so they said, this sounds like a good plan. And so they set up their altar and they put the wood on the altar and they put the slain bull on top of the wood and they start praying to their Baal. And they're dancing around the altar and they're praying, oh, Baal, come on, Baal, send the fire, Baal. Well, a few hours pass. Nothing happens. They cried out, oh, Baal, answer us. But surprise, surprise, Baal didn't answer. And so around noontime, this is one of my favorite parts in chapter 18. Around noontime, Elijah starts doing some trash talking. He starts talking some smack. He he says there to these Baal worshippers, shout louder. Surely Baal is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. He may have even thrown in. Maybe he's going potty. He's taunting them. He's talking trash. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he must be awakened. Well, this really got on their nerves. These Baal worshippers are really ticked now. Man, they've got egg in their face. He's making fun of them and their God. And so what do they start doing? At noontime, after that taunt is over, they start pulling out the daggers and slashing themselves. They're cutting themselves up and down, making themselves bloody messes. And they're dancing more ferociously, and they're yelling out to Baal more loudly. And so they're frantically dancing around this altar and slashing themselves up. And the afternoon comes and goes. And these guys are exhausted, they are bloody, and still there's no fire. Elijah steps forward, he prays as he builds his own altar. Not only does he build his own altar and put the wood and the bowl on top of his own altar, he has them take 12 large jars of water and pour 12 large jars of water on top of that sacrifice so it runs down and even fills the trench underneath the altar. This thing is drenched. And he steps forward and he prays these words, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. When Elijah finished his prayer, we read in verse 38 of chapter 18, The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. It burned up the wood. It burned up even the stones and licked up the soil. Caused all that water to evaporate. 
And so the people, when they saw the fire of God fall from heaven, they fell on their faces on the ground and they cried out, The Lord, He is God! 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 The people are on their faces. Then Elijah orders the people of Israel to seize the prophets of Baal and they take them down the mountain to a valley and slaughter all of them. Well, Elijah proceeds to climb up to the very top of Mount Carmel and he prays for God to send rain on Israel. At this point, it hadn't rained for almost three years. And God prays that God would send, he prays to God that he would send rain and God answers his prayer. He sends a mighty rain on Israel to nourish the ground. So when we get to the end of chapter 18, we can't help but feel pretty pumped up. Elijah challenged 450 enemy prophets. If you add the prophets of Asherah, he challenged really 850 prophets to a showdown. Those are crazy odds. Think about it. 850 to 1. Crazy odds. But Elijah came out on top, didn't he? Despite his life being threatened, Elijah made a public stand for the Lord. He showed great courage. He showed confidence in God. And when I read chapter 18 and get to the end of it, I think to myself, I want to be that man. I want to be like Elijah because Elijah, he's the man. That's how I finish chapter 18 and what I tend to think. But then we get to chapter 19. Say amen if you're there. And we start in verse 1 of chapter 19. It reads, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid. Not a verse that we would expect after chapter 18. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up, eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 30 days, excuse me, 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. After reading about Elijah's great boldness and his, his courage and his faith in chapter 18, Verse 3 of chapter 19 seems really out of character for Elijah. Look at that verse again, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Perhaps you look at this verse like me and, and you say to yourself, How is this possible? How could this have happened? 
this isn't the first time that Jezebel had threatened Elijah's life. She had wanted to kill him for a really long time, and he knew that. He's known for a long time that she wanted to kill him, and God had protected him each and every time. When Elijah was standing up on top of Mount Carmel, taunting Jezebel's 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah didn't seem at all concerned about anyone threatening his life. Elijah's faith in God had been so strong that he never ran from danger. Whenever it was God's will, he ran right into danger. So what gives? What's going on that would cause Elijah suddenly to turn and run in fear? And here's the quick answer. Fill it in your handout if you're filling in those blanks today. Elijah was exhausted and Elijah was depressed. Elijah was exhausted and he was depressed. Is it possible for God's people to get exhausted and depressed? Absolutely. Most of us have experienced this reality firsthand. That's why I'm so glad that God placed chapter 19 in the Bible. Part of us would love to have chapter 19 on the cutting room floor and not make it into Scripture. But God put it in the Word of God for a reason. You and I need chapter 19. I'm glad God placed this chapter in the Bible because... As much as we love the thrill of 1 Kings 18, you and I need the comfort and the wisdom that comes in chapter 19. You see, as followers of Christ, we sometimes get physically tired. Sometimes we get emotionally drained. Sometimes we feel spiritually empty. Sometimes we get depressed, don't we? And this chapter is rich with comfort and wisdom for all of us. I'd like to point out seven very powerful lessons that we can draw from 1 Kings chapter 19. Sooner or later, you will be down in the dumps. Sooner or later, it will feel like you may never get back up on that spiritual mountaintop again. Sometimes you will be in a situation where you think, emotionally, you'll never be healthy again. And God speaks wisdom into your life from this chapter. Here it is, lesson number one. Remember to give glory to the Master and not to his servants. Remember to give glory to the master and not to his servants. A few minutes ago I mentioned that when I finish chapter 18, I I tend to say, I want to be that guy because Elijah, he's the man. And it only takes three verses into chapter 19 for God to remind me that Elijah is not the man. Amen? Elijah is not the man. Elijah was a human being with doubts and fears just like me. He loved the Lord, but he could also get down in the dumps just like me. Chapter 19 reminds me that on his own, Elijah was no superman. He never was. Elijah's victories in chapter 18 were not his victories. They were God's victories. So chapter 19 reminds me and it reminds you to give glory to God, not to people. Elijah isn't the man. Jesus Christ is the man. Jesus Christ is the man. And when we allow the man to do his thing in us and through us, chapter 18 kind of stuff is going to happen. Catch that? When we allow the real man, Jesus Christ, to do his work in us and through us, that's when chapter 18 kind of stuff is going to happen. 
He was working through Elijah and in Elijah and with Elijah in that prior chapter. And that's the only reason Elijah came out on top as he was standing on Mount Carmel. Lesson number two. When we have a spiritual mountaintop experience, we must brace ourselves for the valley of testing on the other side of it. For some of you, this may be the most important point we look at today. We all know that in nature, mountaintops do not connect with other mountaintops. You don't go to the top of Mount Everest and just proceed to the other peaks from there, do you? It doesn't happen. We know that in nature, mountaintops are always separated from other mountaintops with these little things we call valleys. That's how it works in nature. But somehow, we forget that this isn't just how it works in the natural realm, but that's how it works with our emotions and even our spiritual lives. No person can experience a permanent emotional high. Our emotions don't work that way. And no person can experience a permanent spiritual high because our spiritual lives don't work that way. I think deep down we all know this, but for some reason we still seem caught off guard when our emotional highs don't last. Somehow we still seem caught off guard when we come down from that mountaintop experience at Christian camp or at some retreat or on a mission trip, somehow it still catches us off guard that when we come down from that emotional or spiritual high, life kind of stinks. Somehow we're still caught off guard. We wonder why after a great Sunday morning worship service, we have some of the biggest arguments with our spouse on the drive home. We wonder why the water heater explodes on a Sunday. We wonder why the dog stares us down and then walks the other direction when we come home from church. We wonder, even though we know deep down that mountaintops don't connect to mountaintops, but mountaintops are formed with other mountaintops through valleys, even though we know this, somehow we're still caught off guard. We we don't understand when we come back from Christian camp or from a mission trip why everybody's pushing our buttons and we're grumpy. We don't even want to go out and face the world. It's just a reality of life here on earth. When we're coming down off the mountain, we're bound to enter a valley. We can only run on adrenaline for so long. We can only deal with sleep deprivation for so long. I got back from that mission trip, and it was amazing. But a couple days after getting home, Christine's talking to me, and something's not right with you. (laughs) She's right. I was exhausted. I, 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 I was exhausted, and, you know, just the spiritual high at the mission trip. It happens to all of us. Pastors are no exception. We're no exception. It's just a reality of living here on life, uh, living life here on earth, just like those of us who might attempt to ascend Mount Everest. Anyone who ever gets to the peak and, and is there standing on the highest point on planet Earth, standing at the peak of Mount Everest, they can only be there for about a half hour or so. If they stay much longer, they're going to die. And so they get to the mountaintop and they celebrate years and years of training and years of work and months of slowly ascending Mount Everest and slowly acclimating to the various heights. They finally get to the top. They can only be there about a half hour. Then they have to come back down so that they don't die. It's a good reminder that in our emotional and spiritual lives, we can't be on mountaintops forever. A wise man once said, 
beware of human reactions after holy exertions. It's kind of a deep phrase, don't you think? Others of us might look at that and say, what on earth does that mean? Well, let me give you a translation. Here's the translation. (laughs) Put it on the screen there. When you're coming down off a spiritual high, beware of doing something really stupid. That's the layman's terms translation. When you're coming down off the spiritual high, beware of doing something really stupid. How many of you can look back to a time when you were coming off an emotional or spiritual high and did something dumb? Or said something dumb to your spouse or your parents or your kids? It happens a lot. We have to be careful. Elijah made some stupid, rash decisions here in chapter 19 when he was physically exhausted from the Mount Carmel experience. When he was spiritually drained from being up there and winning that great victory on Mount Carmel, he assumed that he was thinking rationally about Jezebel's threats, but he wasn't thinking rationally. This threat was not new, but he thought somehow it was. He thought also that running was the best option, but he was wrong. He figured he'd be better off dead, but nothing could have been further from the truth. And sometimes when we're dealing with a pit of depression, we find ourselves saying this to ourselves, I would be better off dead. The same thing Elijah says here in chapter 19 And all of us who have read chapter 18, all of us who have heard the story of chapter 18, want to pull out our hair and say, Elijah, don't you see reality? Don't you see what you've just done? Don't you see the great victory God has won through you? Don't you see that Jezebel is already defeated and her days are numbered? She's going to be dead like one of those prophets of Baal very soon. Can't you see the victory? The final victory is at hand. But when we're in the pit of depression, we sure feel like our thoughts are accurate. I would be better off dead. When you get to that point, please remember what I'm saying today. That voice speaking to you is a lie. It's not grounded in reality. It is not true. Just as it was not true for Elijah, it is not true with you. God is not true with you yet. And the mountaintop is up ahead. Hold on to the hope that it's up ahead. Don't ever make any major life decisions when you're physically and spiritually drained. Don't do it. Which leads us to lesson number three. Sometimes the best remedy for a pessimistic outlook is sleep. Just take a nap. For some of you, this may be your favorite point your favorite lesson of anything I've ever said. You hear that, honey? He said, I need to take a nap. You hear that? I've got to get a little bit more rest. Now, some people sleep way too much, but many of us sleep way too little. Notice what it says the angel of the Lord did. And remember, when it says angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most times that's referring to God himself, and we believe that's referring to a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ himself. And so in all likelihood, Jesus Christ is coming to Elijah and ministering to his needs here. 
Notice what happens in verses 4 and 5. Elijah has this incredibly morbid and pessimistic view of his own life. He prays that God would take his life. He prays, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. But thankfully, he didn't take matters into his own hands and end his life. Thankfully, Elijah took a nap. Then after he got some sleep, Jesus Christ, or it says here, the angel of the Lord, he wakes him up and gives him some nourishment. Uh, He gives him some food and some water because he was hungry and he was thirsty. And after he filled his tummy, then Jesus Christ allowed Elijah to get some more sleep because he was still tired. Then notice what is said in verse 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is another term for Sinai, Mount Sinai. After getting some much-needed sleep and putting some food and some water in his tummy, Elijah wasn't out of the woods, but he was in a much better place to hear God's godly counsel. The same goes for us. Sometimes when we're depressed, we need some sleep. We need some rest. We need some nourishment in our bodies. We need something other than soda to drink, something that will nourish and hydrate our bodies. And when we wake up from that nice long nap, it's not like we're out of the woods, but we're in a much better place to hear God speak to us. In all likelihood, some of us here today are experiencing some lingering depression, in part because we're not doing these basic things to care for these bodies of ours. We're not getting the sleep that we need. <clears throat> We're not getting <clears throat> nourishing our bodies with healthy food and clean beverages like we need. Am I saying that lack of sleep affects your mood? Absolutely. Absolutely lack of sleep affects our mood. Am I saying that if my diet is lousy, it could affect my depression? Absolutely. If we're feeding junk into our bodies, we're more likely not only to deal with physical illness, but also emotional or psychological illness. And you could even take it a step further if you're trashing your body, your outlook on God and the things of God. Your spiritual life, your spiritual outlook will be affected. We have to take care of these bodies. Sometimes, yes, we do need to lose some sleep and skip some meals if God calls us to fast or press in on some work He has for us to do. But once we finish that season of fasting, once we finish that task that God has called us to lose some sleep over, we need to make sure at that point that we catch up on that rest and we take in that nourishment that we need. Well, after traveling for 40 days and 40 nights, there Elijah is in the cave and God is going to speak to him. Let's pick up in verse, the second half of verse 9 of chapter 19. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Here in these verses, I believe we can find four more powerful lessons. Lesson number four, when we are depressed, we tend to exaggerate the size of the opposition. When we're depressed, we tend to exaggerate the size of the opposition. In verse 10 and in verse 14, Elijah, if you look at those verses there, he says the exact same thing. When God asks him, Elijah, why are you here? He uses the exact same words twice. In verse 10 he says it. In verse 14 he says it. Oh God, I'm running because there's no one left. Uh, No one is serving you. It's all useless and I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. He says the exact same thing twice. But notice what God says in verse 18. God tells Elijah, Elijah, you're wrong. There are 7,000 men in Israel who I have not allowed to bow their knees to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. There are 7,000 others. Elijah exaggerated the size of the opposition. And don't we tend to do the exact same thing when we're depressed? When we're down in the dumps, we exaggerate how big our problems are. And to make matters worse, we exaggerate how powerless we are to deal with these problems. Think about it. When we're down in the dumps, our problems are huge. We use words like nobody and everyone. Nobody likes me. Everyone is against me. We use words like nothing And everything, nothing is going my way. Everything around me is falling apart. We use these words over and over when we're down and we're speaking to our own minds and hearts. These words of discouragement, these words of giving up, these words of pessimism. Nothing is going right. No one loves me. Everything is wrong. Everybody hates me. And as we go into this downward spiral, that downward spiral only continues as we speak these kinds of words into our hearts. Well, friends, if I remember right, God's Word tells us I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I remember correctly, God's Word says if God is for us, who can be against us? And if if I'm remembering correctly, I think God's Word says... Greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world, and we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. When we are in the pit of depression, we need to remember that everything that we're looking at 
will tend to be looked at from a pessimistic perspective. We are exaggerating the size of the opposition, and we're underestimating what can be done with Christ in me. We have to make sure that we remind ourselves that our outlook and our perspective is not grounded in reality. We are, in fact, exaggerating the size of the opposition, and we are underestimating our ability with the strength of God to face any challenge that comes our way. Lesson number five, when we are depressed, we need to fix our eyes on the power and glory of God. Over the centuries, Christians have asked, what's up with these three different natural uh, events that come to Elijah when he's there in the cave? You know, what's up with the wind? What's up with the earthquake? What's going on with the fire? If God wasn't in them, why did God send them? Well, I think God was doing it for a few reasons, but let's focus on one of those reasons. I believe God sent the wind and the earthquake and the fire to give Elijah a small taste of his power. To give him a small taste of his power because as he was in the pit of this depression with this jaded viewpoint that the whole world was against him and his opposition was so huge, God needed to give him a quick little reminder that the glory and the power of Jezebel ain't diddly compared to the glory and the power of Almighty God. Sometimes when we're in the pit of discouragement, we think our enemy is huge, and God has to give us a reminder, I'm a whole lot huger. You think your problem, you think your enemy is big, I'm a whole lot bigger. Let me ask you, Elijah, as I send this little wind that rattles the rocks on the mountainside, can Jezebel send a wind that rattles the rocks on the mountainside? She can break wind, but that's about as far as she can go. I just sent you this earthquake. Can God send an earthquake that will cause the mountains to topple? Jezebel might have a mouth of an earthquake, but it stops there. Let me ask you, I just brought fire out of nothing, and this all-consuming fire was blazing right in front of your eyes. Can Jezebel cause fire to spontaneously erupt out of thin air? No, she can't. You might think that she's got a certain amount of power and glory, but it is nothing compared to my power and glory, Elijah, and I am with you. Lesson number six, the whispers from Calvary are infinitely more potent than the thunder of Sinai in bringing men to repentance. This is a quote from Oswald Sanders, and I thought it was so well said, I just put the quote there as one of the lessons. The whispers from Calvary are infinitely more potent, more powerful than the thunder of Sinai. As he's there on Mount Horeb, remember, he's there on Mount Sinai. And it had only been a few hundred years earlier where Moses was on Mount Sinai and God came and spoke to him. It was a powerful place where God on several occasions met with some of his greatest servants. But it's interesting that the wind comes and it specifically says God was not in the wind. And then the earthquake comes and it specifically says he was not in the earthquake. And then the great fire comes and it says he was not in the fire, but he was in the gentle whisper. God wanted Elijah to know and he wants us to know that if we're looking for his next word, if we're searching for his marching orders in the noise we're likely not going to hear what he has to tell us. 
Some of us will blast the Christian music and hope God speaks to us through that. God usually doesn't give us his greatest words as we're blasting the Christian music in our ears. Sometimes we'll surround ourselves with all sorts of racket and noise and busyness, and God doesn't oftentimes speak in the midst of the busyness. You know, we were, when we were on this mission trip a couple weeks ago, we shared our, our sleeping area, the guys did, with guys from other churches. And there was this one young guy named Jacob that, that dealt with seizures. And he was having seizures even while we were there. And so his group leader had to be real close to him and make sure he kept an eye on him. But Glenn, one of our adult leaders that went, noticed one night that the guy had his headphones on and the music was so loud in the middle of the night as this kid was sleeping, we could hear it from the other side of the room. And and Glenn, in all honesty, was wondering, I wonder if this is affecting his brain negatively. You kind of wonder. Sometimes we bombard ourselves with so much noise, we cannot hear the voice of God. Not only does it not help us, it hinders us. It makes situations worse. When it comes down to it, we all need to have the spiritual habit of silence where we turn off the music and we turn off the television and we get in a quiet place where God can speak to us because so often God speaks to us with a still, small voice. Seventh and final lesson. When our mourning, as in crying, drags on, It becomes a pity party. And God will not endorse our pity parties. He calls us to get up and do what he's called us to do. So what happens with Elijah here? God allowed Elijah a certain amount of time to sulk. He allowed him some time to gripe and to complain and to stay in his pessimistic outlook. But when he was done with that and God spoke to him, God expected him to get up and carry out those marching orders. Before you put your Bibles away, let me just finish with this. Chapter 19 ends with Elijah leaving the cave and heading back to Israel to carry out God's marching orders. And when Elijah left the cave, he left his pity party behind. Some of you, possibly me today as well, we need to do the same thing. Maybe you've been walking in defeat for too long. So once you get some sleep and you give your body some nourishment and you refocus your eyes on the power and the glory and the greatness of God, you need to brush yourself off and get up and follow God's marching orders. Get up, brush yourself off, and start doing what God has called you to do. And as you walk in obedience to His commands... Don't bring your pity party with you. Sometimes we deal with depression in part because we have something in our minds biochemically going on. And we need to go see some medical help. Sometimes people do benefit from some medication. But you and I also both know that sometimes we're down in the dumps because we do not do what God has called us to do to take care of these bodies that He's given to us, to stop thinking the problems in the world are bigger than God because they never are. He calls us to realign our focus on Him, to listen to His still small voice as He gives us our marching orders, 
And we push that pity party aside and we walk in obedience to his command. And you know what? As you walk through the valley, guess what's up ahead? The mountaintop is up ahead. It's not just behind you. It's also in front of you. And God will see to it that you get there as you walk in obedience to his command. Father, we come to you thanking you for speaking to us through chapter 18 and also through chapter 19. Thank you, Lord, for speaking. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for the victories in our past. We thank you for the victories up ahead. And we thank you, O God, that you will be with us every step of the way. Lord, I pray for those today dealing with discouragement. Those in this room today, Lord, or maybe those that are listening to our live broadcast on Facebook, Lord, those who are dealing with depression, I want to pray for them, God, that you would speak words of encouragement and hope into their life today, that they would stop beating themselves up, Lord, that they would stop over-exaggerating the size of the enemy or the opposition, but, Lord, that you would remind them today how big you are, how strong you are, How all-sufficient you are, because you can do all things. And if you are in our lives, we can do all things through Christ, who gives us strength. In Jesus' name.